Revelation chapter 9, verses 13 through 21, and the title of the study is, When Man Refuses to Repent. When Man Refuses to Repent. There's so many details in, the, in these uh, closing verses of chapter 9 that we could easily get our mind fixed on um, these strange creatures that are going to be released by the uh, river Euphrates and to get all caught up in this. But the real information is at the end when we read in verse 21, they did not repent. That's, that's, the, that's the noteworthy matter. Um, so that's kind of what we're going to be doing. But in the first half of chapter 9, we saw uh, what has to be, I mean, if you, if you can find a darker day, okay, you're not going to find many. But this is like one of the darkest days in human history, is when the, uh, the Abuso, and if you weren't here in our last study, I encourage you to go listen to that. Um, we did a, a large, you know, time dedicated to studying about fallen angels and all the rest. And, and these angels descend in the days of, of Noah and were chained up, were released, and this, this dark smoke came out of this shaft from the Abuso, and up from it came this, these swarms of, of demons that are likened unto locusts, just devouring. But what is unique about them, besides the fact that you have demons that are just tormenting planet Earth for five months, but in those five months, as they're going around and tormenting, and we read that the, their sting in the tail was like that of a scorpion, what's interesting is that the death is, is suspended for the first time since uh, uh, the days of Noah. Death is suspended on planet Earth. Nobody dies for five months. And it's one of the, the times in which there is more reason to want to die than ever before. And so that's kind of uh, where we got up to um, in our last study, up to verse 12. But as this next trumpet blast um, sounds, we're going to see another dark army just sweeping across the globe and just wreaking havoc. Unlike their other, and I believe it's a, d- a demonic horde in, in you know, the opening of chapter 9, coming out of the Abuso, but also in uh, verses 13 through 21, we're reading about a second demonic army, this dark army um, from Satan that's coming to just cause all kinds of problems. The first army came and just tormented. The second army is going to come in and he's going to wipe out a third of the population. You read that, around 2 billion people. Around 2 billion people. This is why Isaiah says, man will be more rare than fine gold in the last days. You don't see many, much of that laying around your front yard, do you? That fine, fine gold I'm talking about, not dead men. For, you know, hopefully you don't see either of those. But, uh, you know, it's just you, that people have a problem with this number. Like, this is too many people. Well, the prophets have said that, that man is going to be rare. He's going to be scarce upon the earth. And so that's, that's where we're headed. So let's go ahead and move into this sixth trumpet blast. So then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. So there was Solomon's temple, right? Uh, there was a tabernacle that was in the wilderness, and for a few uh, hundred years, once they first moved into the land, and they would go and worship the Lord and make all their sacrifices there. And there was an altar there. But that altar was there because 
It was made from the blueprint of the one that's in heaven, the temple that's in heaven. And in the temple in heaven, there is an altar. And it's that altar in heaven that we're referring to, the horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet. So you have the angel who has the trumpet in the presence of the Lord. It says, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels, not just any angels, the four angels. It's, it's trying to bring attention to a specific group of angels. The, the four angels um, who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. And I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, so of the, the fire, the smoke, and the brimstone, by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents, like venomous snakes, having heads, and with them they do harm. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons, and idols of gold, silver, um, a stone, a brass stone, and wood, which can neither see, nor hear, nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So again, I mean, this is a really dark time. I mean, it's a time... Um, that nobody wants to be around. You know, if somebody was to say, well, why don't you think the church will be going through the Great Tribulation? I would say, because I can't see Jesus releasing this upon us. This is, this is not what's going to happen to his bride. Um, so that's just one of many reasons. But let's look at this. We hear the call for judgment in verse 13. And... Um, we read of the horns of the altar, and we hear a voice from the four horns. So um, we've read, you read of this, that somebody will go and cling to the horns of the altar. And they're not like horns like on an animal, but they just kind of, they're, they're stone that are shaped into a point on the four corners, and they're called, um, they're called the horns. And people would often go there, and they would cling to them, and they would want to find mercy there. There's no mercy on these horns. The day of God showing mercy upon planet Earth has passed. Can that happen? Can, is that possible that there would ever come a time where God would not show mercy? Well, actually, yeah. It's happened once before. In Genesis chapter 6, God said, My spirit, does anybody know what it says? Will not always strive with man. I'm not always going to be striving with man to bring him to the place of repentance. And this is a day when that which some would go and cling to for mercy is going to actually, from there, the voice of judgment is going to come. It's just kind of, it's, it's, a, it's a picture that kind of just meant to 
uh, compound the force of what is about to happen. No mercy to be found here. And the, the four angels at the, the river Euphrates, they are released. So these angels have been there and waiting. They've been prepared for an hour, a day, a month, and a year, and they're released to kill a third of mankind. So are these the angels that had fallen also in the days of, of Noah and that are bound up and have long had this plan to destroy mankind and yet have never been allowed? That's what it seems to be. They have had this plot hatched to destroy mankind, but they have never been allowed to carry it out. They've been held back. But at this moment, as a sixth trumpet blast, these angels are released. We don't have any more identity about these four angels. And they seem to be, some have suggested it, it makes sense, although it's not emphatic or crystal clear in this passage. They probably are the four that are leading the 200 um, uh, million army that goes out across the earth. So divide it up into four um, as they go out to the, you know, presumably the four corners of the world to bring their terror upon mankind. Um, and so the question is, you know, who are these? <laughs> who are these four angels? Some have wanted to identify them uh, with the angels of chapter 7, verse 1, that are in the presence of the Lord. And, and I really don't think that that is who they are. And the reason is, they are what? What, what, what are they? They are bound. And they're going to be released um, and so you see that, release the four angels who are bound. We're, we also read of a day in which Satan is going to be bound and he's going to be thrown into the lake of, of fire, right? So um, there, there's that uh, to think about um, as, a, as a parallel. But these are bound. And you, we don't read of good angels that are serving and carrying out the work of the Lord being bound. But these are bad dudes, who have been held for, um, it would seem, for thousands of years to keep back their plot to bring destruction. And so this is a second, I would say, demonic invasion that's happening. And they're coming to torment mankind and to kill them. Um, two armies of the fifth trumpet and sixth, they're similar, right? We read of, if, you, if we took the time to read it, I encourage you to read the whole chapter, and you can see the parallels that exist between um, these. The vision of the fifth and sixth uh, horses, right? They, they have these horses. They have a teeth of lion. One has the head of a lion. One has the power in the tail um, like a scorpion. The other one has a tail like a venomous snake. So there's a, there's a lot of similarity that exists between these two groups. And it would seem like they're, you know, they're different aspects of the same group coming, going forth. But the first one only torments and the second one actually brings death. So Euphrates River. This is an often referred to river in Scripture, isn't it? Um, one of the first places that we read about this is that it's, it's a river that found its fountainhead. Does anybody know where? In the Garden of Eden. And so you read about it there. It was a boundary, or it is going to be a boundary of the, of the land of Israel, but it was a boundary that was set for the promised land. Um, and this was also 
a place that was very symbolic outside of Scripture um, to both the Jew, uh, well, that would be in Scripture, but also to the Roman Empire outside of Scripture. So for the Jew, um, judgment came from beyond the Euphrates twice with the Assyrians and also came with the Babylonians. And that was the judgment of God. When it came beyond the Euphrates, it was a judgment that was coming. But one of uh, the Roman Empire's uh, greatest failures happened in 53 BC as Crassus went over the Euphrates and he attacked um, what we would know as a modern Iran. And they were defeated and they were sent home and it was an embarrassment. And, um, you know, in no way to put it on the same level as the prophecies of Scripture, but there were these other prophecies that happened among the cults and, and occults about the kings of the East and what would happen. And so in the mind of the Roman Empire, and even in some of their prophecies, when the, the armies came from the East, it would be the downfall of the Roman Empire. No, there's no truth in that. That's just what was in their minds and what was, was in their psyche, if you will. So for the Jews, when they heard something about you know, the Euphrates, they immediately thought of the Assyrians and the judgment of God. They immediately thought of Babylon and the judgment of God. But when the Romans heard it, they thought about one of their most embarrassing defeats ever and the prophecies that were associated. So um, it just would have added to... When it, when it hit their ears, it would have rang a little bit differently in their ears than it does in ours because of their history and that barrier that existed at the Euphrates River. You know, at the Euphrates River, um, it's where the first rebellion happened, isn't it? That's where man first sinned and rebelled against God in the garden. It's, it's near where the first murder took place where Cain murdered his brother Abel. It's also the place where the first organized revolt against God happened, the Tower of Babel. There's a lot of things that happened around the Euphrates River that are not good. Um, it's where the last rebellion is going to take place. In chapter 16 of the book of Revelation, we will read of how the Euphrates River will dry up and the kings of the east will come over and they will come into the valley of Armageddon and they will battle and they will fight against God and there they will die. The Euphrates River is just it's associated with all kinds of evil throughout Scripture. So if you want to go do a cool little word study... Um, Look up Euphrates and just start going through it. You know, just start reading the passages of and what took place around that area. But what we see here is that they've been waiting for a specific moment. And God has known the day and he's known the hour and he's known the year in which they're going to be released. And so although what they unleash is chaos and fear. I mean, can you even imagine the dread that will be upon mankind's heart? To have 200 million of these fallen creatures going out and causing this kind of devastation. But in the midst of all this out-of-control scene, the sovereign God of the universe is saying, I am omnipotent and I will hold you back. I am omniscient and I know when I'm going to release you. And with the word, he tells another angel, release them. I, I don't know how much knowledge the angels of heaven have. Um, certainly those that are in heaven and know the scriptures, when this happens, you can almost hear the gasp 
of those that know Scripture, of what is about to take place. But God is omniscient, and God is omnipotent, and God knows what's happening upon planet Earth. He's never out of control. This is this sixth trumpet is the greatest death toll recorded since the flood. There's no other single event in the history of the world that comes close to the death toll that's going to take place. Um, of course, we have seen a quarter of the population um, in the previous judgment already gone. and you, So you have, at the end of the sixth trumpet, at a minimum, based upon the world population today, at a minimum, 3.85 billion people are no longer on planet Earth and we're only halfway through. In three and a half years, this is what's going on. It's so, I mean, th- that number is so dramatic, it makes you even wonder how can they even possibly deal with that kind of death toll? How are they going to dispose of the bodies? What, what about the, the spread of disease and all the rest? In verse 6, now the number of verse 16, but now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. <laughs> Uh, in the census taken in the Roman Empire, the number of people in the entire empire totaled 200 million. So I mean, if you were reading this in their day, and it was delivered in to those believers that were living in the Roman Empire, you just read about something where you have one demonic being for everybody in the Roman Empire. I mean, it's... I I don't think that's what was trying to be communicated, but if you're reading it, you're thinking in terms like this. The height of World War II, all the soldiers on all the different armies that took the battlefield, 70 million. So you're talking about a massive group of people. Some have said, well, you know, this is a number that's just, um, you know, he's just guessing. How do you guess at 200 million? It's not a guess. It's, we read that he was told. <laughs> I heard the number of them, it says. So there is a communication that's happening in heaven. But these are the most terrifying warriors. They, they are worse than the ones that came at the beginning of chapter 9. They are the worst warriors to ever take the battlefield. It is a dark army that's coming to do Terrible damage. Again, I'll read to you from Joel chapter 2, verses 3 and 5, like I did um, a couple of weeks ago when we were in the first part of this chapter. It says, A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds, so they run. With the noise like a chariot over mountaintops, they leap. Like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like strong people set in battle array. And that is what the prophet Joel saw. So these um, creatures, these beings, they are, you know, they have the head of a lion, they breathe fire, smoke, and brimstone. And those are the, the three plagues. They're called the three plagues. In other words, it's by these three um, aspects of these creatures. That death is coming. You know, the fire is pretty easy. They're breathing out fire and people are dying. They're breathing out this, this smoke and people are, um, and, and, and brimstone, and they're, they're, they're suffocating. 
as they go. Um, and so this is how they are um, bringing this kind of destruction upon them. So again, this one plague alone, 3, 3.85 billion people are, is half of the population of the world at this time. So if you take away that first plague of a quarter of the earth being taken away, you, in this one plague alone, you have just under 2 billion people that are going to die as these 200 million go out to bring death. They seem to have it out for mankind. There is a, there's an anger, there's a vengeance, there's a seething hatred that's in this army for some reason, and they've been held back for you know, millennials of, of ages, and now the hours come. They get to go do their worst upon mankind. And we're given a pretty vivid picture of them. They have breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And so they, they, they're just these beings. Maybe, you know, this, this breastplate, just speaking of, of um, not only the colors of it, but no damage is going to happen to these things. Nobody's going to be able to touch them. No weapon is going to be able to uh, come against them. It's interesting, this description if you read the description that Job gave, or we find in Job, of Leviathan, it says, Fire and sparks leap from its mouth. Smoke streams from its nostrils like steam from a boiling pot of fire of dry rushes. Yes, its breath would kindle coals for flames shoot from its mouth. So, you know... Whatever this creature is, I would imagine we can compare it to nothing because it is specially designed. And, you know, in this creature that comes, um, I believe it, it's, it's demonic um, and they're coming to destroy mankind. But that the rider and the horse, there's really, it's like the, the riders upon this thing. Um, and it's somehow directing this animal as it goes, this horse, the, the, this like an creature that it's on, is directing it to release these different plagues as it goes. Not a good place to be. Not a good place. So in verse 20, But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. Wow. You know, the thought that many have is, if God would just show more mercy and more kindness that people would repent. And that's not the case. God could show no more mercy or kindness than he has shown at the cross. And when God's wrath is seen, at this time in history, repentance is gone from the planet. Nobody else repents. And I, you know, even in the days of Noah, you had eight that repented. And at the beginning of the tribulation, you had many that were repenting, but they were all being slaughtered and martyred. And actually, this is a response to their prayer to avenge them. And so this is what's happened. This is coming down upon those who have been killing um, those Christians that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ during the tribulation. But man doesn't repent. What does repent mean? Well, it's the Greek word metanoia which means to have a change of mind. Um, Webster defines it this way. The pain, regret, or affliction which a person feels on account of his past conduct 
because it exposes him to punishment. It's a sorrow that leads to repentance. Not simply an emotional, I messed up. It's a deep sorrow that says, I want to change. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 through 10 says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. There's a lot of people that are sorry that never find repentance. There's a lot of people that um, you know, have done things and are experiencing the consequences for what they've done, but they have no real regret for their action. They have a regret for the consequences. And they're not willing to change. He goes on in 2 Corinthians 7, in verse 9, he says, For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. True repentance will all, I mean, sorry, true sorrow was always going to lead to repentance. And people will turn and they will change. You know repentance. You're a Christian. You know what it's like. You were living for yourself. You're doing your own thing. And you turned and you stopped living that way. You had a change. Esau is one of those negative examples of worldly sorrow in Scripture. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 through 17. It says, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright, For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. Listen to this. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. He had all kinds of worldly sorrow and regret, but there wasn't place to repent. He wanted the birthright, but he didn't want to stop being the the fleshly man that he was. He gave up that birthright, for food. He wanted to satisfy his flesh. And that birthright was, was uh, also not only did it include um, uh, you know, uh, an inheritance of material goods, but it was a responsibility to lead the family spiritually. And he had no interest in that. He didn't care about the spiritual stuff. He was sorry that he didn't get the material stuff. And he, and he wept over that, but there was no place for repentance. There's a lot of people that weep over their circumstances. I imagine in the blast of the sixth trumpet, there'll be all kinds of weeping that will be going on, but they're not going to find repentance. How could God do this? These people are set on rebellion against God. They are set on rebellion. If there was ever a time where people would repent, it would certainly be here. When you see the well, you know, the, the kingdom of darkness and what it wants to do. And, and in some way, 144,000, I would imagine, are letting the world know what is going on is because of your rebellion against God. You must repent. And they're saying no. There is a voice of preaching that's going on during the tribulation. And they hear it and they say no. And so it's upon these that the worst of all things happen. It's almost like at the opening of chapter 9, the Lord's like, okay, this is going to happen, but you're not going to die. And yet when it begins, there's no repentance. 
And at the end of the second release, there is still no repentance. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, we read, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, the good news about the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What are they to do? They're to turn from their sorceries and their idolatry and their thieveries and their sexual immorality. We read the list here. They're murders. They're to turn from those things, and they are to believe in the gospel. That's the message that Jesus, um, that John the Baptist preached. That's the message that Jesus preached. That is the message that we preach, and that is the message that the 144,000 are going to be preaching. We'll be introduced to it in, in, in a little while, but this is a message that the two angels that fly throughout the world at this time in world history and proclaim the everlasting gospel. I mean, they're not going to be believed either. And so this is a message, a message of repentance. Change the way you are living. Turn from this and turn to the Lord. Again, the list that we read there of the sins that will rule the last days. See if it sounds familiar. Idolatry, demon worship or idol worship, murder, sorceries, sexual immorality, and thievery. It's interesting, the word sorcery, and I know many of you know this, it's the Greek word pharmakia, and it's where we get our word pharmacy from, but the significance in that day was not pharmacy. It's that those that would engage in the occultic practices would take different types of um, uh, you know, chemicals to hallucinate and have an encounter with the spiritual realm. You know, you can go figure that out. But that's what happens. That there, when, you, when people give themselves over to drugs, there's an opening that happens in the mind to the demonic realm. And, and this is the sorceries that are going on. And um, we see that a rampant uh, you know, explosion of that sexual immorality, thievery, ripping people off. These are the six things that are named. And they're unwilling to repent of those. God desires to see repentance in every single generation, and evidently even in this generation at this hour. Otherwise, we wouldn't read that they did not repent. And if they did not repent, it means there was a message that called them to repentance, and they rejected it. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is the heart of God. God wants all people of all times, of all backgrounds, of wherever they are, to come and to repent and to believe in the everlasting gospel. God has called people to repentance throughout his existence. Um, Cain was told that if he would do the right thing, he would be received by God. Genesis 4, 7, but he didn't. Noah came as a preacher of righteousness, and, and he was ignored, right? Nobody listened to him. Um, in the days of the prophets, Ezekiel 18, 30, repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniqu iniquity will not be your ruin. What does iniquity do? 
Why is God so interested in us turning from sin? Because sin is our ruin. It is a thing that will destroy you. It's a thing that will, is meant to bring death. That's what the enemy is trying to do. Continuing in sin will ruin your life. If you think, well, no, I'm in control of it. Are you really in control of it? Because think about this. We got a little picture of sin here in Revelation chapter 9. At first, it just torments you, right? Like that first release of the demonic cord. They come out and they are stinging and they're tormenting men. And sin will, will do that. But what's the end of sin? It's death. And that second release of these fallen angels come out and they bring death. That is what sin is all about, is to destroy and so this is why God graciously calls us to turn from those things. It's not that he wants us all just to march in unison like robots. If he wanted that, he could, he could snap his fingers and we all would do exactly what he wants right now. He doesn't want that. He wants worshipers. He wants a bride. He wants somebody that is willing to follow him and, and to make that choice. So we see all throughout Scripture, the call to repentance. Again, Jesus talked about it. John the Baptist talked about it. Even in the, the, the first message that was ever preached in the church, Acts 2.38, Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He called people to repentance and the very first message. Acts 17.30 Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. You ever have somebody say, what right do you have to go and preach to people in other countries, other nations, other backgrounds, other cultures, other religions about their need to turn to Jesus Christ? There it is, Acts 17.30 he, he commands all men everywhere to repent. The God, God who created man, God who is over this planet, says, I want everybody to repent. And that is why he is tarrying. That is why he is waiting, as that repentance might take place. Romans 6.23, we, we find out, and I alluded to this already, but why we need to repent for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or Galatians 3.10. Cursed is everyone who continues in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. There's a curse. There's a death that's associated with sin. And God is not content. And we celebrated communion tonight. And the fact that Jesus took in his body a, the punishment for sin. I mean, listen. If Jesus didn't die on the cross... And rise from the dead, we could be sorrowful and we could repent to, and turn to him. But if he's not offering a solution in our repentance, we're out of luck. And that's happened. To, there are people that have genuinely been sorry and they've repented. And there is not, there's no response. There's no help for them. There's no mercy in that repentance. But there is with God. You know, you won't always find mercy with man. Yeah, you know. The courtroom's a bad place to go and find mercy. We say, you know, throw yourself at the mercy of, you know, of the court. That's not a good place to go because courtrooms are known for what? Justice. Judgment. 
That's not a good place to go. Mama's a good place to go for mercy. God is a great place to go for mercy. And, and this is what he's offering. And, he, and so we can turn. And he wants us to turn from that death and from that judgment. Now, what happens when we turn? Well, if I leave these things, if I leave all of these things that are causing me to be separated from God, living a sinful life, I'm afraid to turn. You don't need to be afraid. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Salvation. What a beautiful thing. Not to be regretted, but sorrow of the world produces death. Salvation. Well, I know. But if I come, listen, you won't regret it. You're not going to regret coming to the Lord. Acts 3.19. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Listen to this, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. When you repent and you come to the Lord, He brings refreshment into your, into your life. Sin is hard. The way of the transgressor is hard. This is what Scripture says, right? And, and the, the, we already read of how we need to turn from our iniquity because iniquity brings ruin. It brings death. It, it makes life hard. And you can look and you can see those that have lived long and, and lived long in sin. And you can just look at them and you can say, wow, it has taken its toll on you. You know, some of you are old enough to kind of see people that you, family members that you knew from your, they were younger. Or, you know, people maybe from in high school and you go back and you see them. You're like, Wow. That's not just genetics there. That's not just bad genetics. That's, that's like sin all over your body, and it's ruining you. You're devastated. And it's hard to live a life of sin. And the Lord wants you to repent. The Lord wants you to turn from these things. He wants you to be broken and sorrowful. Yes, over the things that are going on in your life because of the sin, but because you've sinned against your maker, you've rebelled against your maker, and then to turn from it and come to him. And then he wants to give you eternal life. He wants to save you. He wants to refresh you. What isn't there to like about that? What isn't there to like about that? Well, I just want to do my own thing. But your thing is hard. And your thing is not blessing other people. It's hurting other people. And so the call from the Lord is to repent. Last verse I want to read to you, and we'll close in prayer here, is Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the, rebel as in the rebellion and the day of trial in the wilderness. Don't harden your heart against the Lord. You know that if you are convicted by sin, you feel that brokenness over the way that you're living your life, you feel that, and you also have the knowledge that Jesus is the one that can forgive your sins. You, I mean, God has revealed something to you. That is spiritual stuff that you're walking in right there. What are you going to do with it? Well, I'll wait till later. Are you sure there's later? As we read, as I quoted in, from Genesis 6, God says to man, I will not always strive with you. And I think that's true in a generational sense. There comes a time in a generation where God says, I'm done. And that's what we're reading about 
you know, and to a great degree here in the book of Revelation, it's what happened in the days of Noah. But I think a person can get there too, individually. And I, I don't know how to measure that, and I would never try to measure that actually. I just preach the gospel and call people to repentance. But God can say, enough. If you have an awareness that Jesus is Lord and that he is the way to be forgiven of your sin and you, are, you feel that ache in your soul because of your sin, that is spiritual stuff that's happening in your life. That is the Spirit of God working and moving in your life because there are other people that don't care about that at all. They mock the name of Jesus. They are seeking to live in more sin. And, you know, they would want to silence any call to repentance. But, yeah, you feel that and you sense that. What are you waiting for? Don't harden your heart. You can harden your heart against God in what he's saying and what he's doing in your life. And so, I'm obviously, I'm applying this and calling people to, uh, to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But there's, there is an application that goes to the believer is that whatever the Lord would say to you, Run in it quickly. Whatever he speaks to you. As a child that's already redeemed and saved and you've escaped the ruin of sin. But if there's something the Lord is saying to you, is that you should walk in it quickly. You should run into those things. So, Revelation chapter 9. You know, what a creepy day that's going to be. I can't help but to think of the Lord of the Rings in my mind. It's just like this darkness is just coming, just devouring life in front of it. And just vegetation being destroyed and fire coming out of the mouth of these beings. And sulfur suffocating people and brimstone exploding here and there. Wow. Vegetation behind it, just destruction behind. That's a day that's coming upon this earth. And you would think that mankind would all repent. They would line up to repent. Nope. Not a single repentance will happen. Don't harden your heart. Oh, I've got it. I can handle it. Yeah, but you know, you didn't handle it when you had the torment of sin. So who's in control of this sin thing in your life? I can handle it. I'm just going to do this much sin, and then I'll be done with it. There's, you know, I've only got like six more months of sin, and then I'm done with it. How do you know? How do you know? You talk like you're in control. You talk like God's going to be extending mercy to you on that day. Don't harden your heart. Today, today, if not tomorrow, if you'll hear his voice, come to him. Father, we thank you for this grace and this mercy that we've walked in. And Lord, we celebrated it tonight in song. Lord, we're out here tonight because we rejoice in this salvation. God, I just pray that you would speak to our hearts, you'd move in our hearts in a, in a beautiful and a wonderful way to have compassion for the lost. And um, We live in a day, we live at a time in which mercy is being extended in the age of grace. And we pray, Lord, that sons and daughters, moms and dads, brothers and sisters, co-workers that we know that have yet to come, that, that, Lord, we would persuade them because of the terror of the Lord to be reconciled to you.